interesting. It's just the ongoing presence, the constant reminder of political wars, religious turmoil, and the destruction to human life, art, and human values themselves in the name of winning a foothold for the day before the next enemy arrives. The evidence of ancient decay is everywhere, and the ephemeral trappings of 21st century commercial life, uh, neon signs hung on ancient stone buildings, uh, fiats, smart cars and mopeds flying down cobblestone streets, local kids and adults sitting, staring at their smartphones. It all seems particularly flimsy and temporary, as if this whole present generation will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. And yet it is beautiful. We landed in the capital, Palermo, and walked past the city's palazzi and the opera house, cathedral with its amazing mosaics and other churches from various times. The next day was a trip to the ancient ruins of Segesta with the Doric Temple and ancient Greek theater, and uh, then on to the hilltop village of Erisi, Erici, with parts of walls going back to Phoenician times. In the southern town of Agrigento, we saw more Greek ruins, uh, remnants of sophisticated architecture, incorporating how the eye beholds lines and spaces and buildings with those perspectives in mind. They built that way. You know, uh, not too long ago, relatively speaking, they tried to reproduce Athena's temple in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, they didn't take into account all the subtle but critical differences of proportion and spacing, the curvatures, the placing and spacing of the columns that that uh, the ancients had figured out. They'd figured out how the human eye works and what looks best. So in their reproduction, the new reproduction, it just doesn't doesn't really make it. Well, let me give fair warning to those who tuned in for some spiritual insights that I'm going to discuss human history for just a bit. But I, th- I think you'll see where all this is leading. The uh, cross-culturalism in Sicily may be particularly complex, but gives a good idea of how interwoven and contentious all of human history and all parts of the world really can be. Physical evidence of humans in Sicily goes back to 4000 BC, though its prehistory is actually much earlier. Homer's telling of the Trojan War in the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey uh, from around 12th century B.C. includes Odysseus and his encounters with the mythological snake-haired Medusa and the single-eyed Cyclops, both mythologically residents of Sicily. In fact, Sicily's flag is a reproduction of the head of the Medusa with three legs sticking out. It's a very bizarre, surrealistic uh, uh, item to put on a national flag. Uh, the legs are pointing in the directions of the uh, uh, dimensions of Sicily, those three legs pointing east, west, and south. And uh, one of the people on the trip with us said that they thought that the three legs had either three left feet, three right feet, or they were interchangeable depending on who had done the art. But anyway, from the 11th century B.C., Phoenicians began to settle in western and northern Sicily and soon were controlled by uh, Phoenician Carthage. Later, the Greeks settled the eastern areas and 
wars began pushing the dividing lines back and forth. By the 3rd century B.C., the Romans were at war with Carthage, the so-called Punic Wars. And following that came a Sicilian revolt, an invasion of the German Vandals in 440 A.D., an invasion of Goths in 488, Gothic Wars between Goths and the Byzantine Empire, followed by a new Goth plundering of Sicily in 550. And then in the 800s, it was war with the with an Islamic army made up of different elements of uh, Arabs and Moors. And then after that, an invasion of Vikings. In 1040, Sicily was conquered by the king of Norway. So I could go on in detail with occupations by Spain, uh, the uh, Black Death Plague, earthquakes, major earthquakes that brought down cities, invasions of pirates. Anyway, you get the idea. This was a land that has seen more wars and invasions than years of prosperity and peace, and invasions are going on even now. Two days before we left, 600 refugees landed their flimsy boats on Sicilian shores, coming either from the Middle East or from North Africa to find a better way of life in Europe. And the following day, that number rose to 1,700 in one day. The long and short is that we've turned areas of the earth throughout history into battlefields where various factions war with one another. And peace does not seem to be the goal. It seems to be the brief timeouts we allow ourselves in order to catch our breath. The element of creativity in our natures to build temples and libraries, to paint and sculpt and develop delightful technologies like, well, the ancient windmills they built in Sicily or even today's uh, modern Hubble telescope, for example, are limited by the energy we consume by building armies, fighting wars, building defensive walls, and defensive philosophies, including our religions. The lovely but decaying church paintings of the Middle Ages uh, we saw in Sicily, many of them portraying Mary and child over and over, with side panels, little side panels allowing more landscape and character sketches for the artists who were pretty much locked into doing only religious uh, paintings. Uh, there were, in these little side panels, they tell the stories of saints and, and, uh, set rural settings for those saints and, and sacred, uh, events. And it gave artists license to experiment with themes uh, outside of the traditional. But every generation tore down to build again. We saw sites where magnificent Greek temples were dismantled to provide the stones for fortress walls. Then those same stones later reconstructed into Roman temples, only to be deconstructed again to provide stones for churches that were later turned into mosques and later back into churches, uh, some of which are today standing empty, ready for their next reincarnation. The need for food drives the history of forests, animals, fields, and water sources equally in cycles, and that affects climate, turns forests into uh, farm fields, and ultimately, as uh, the soil erodes into major deserts, as the trees get cut, the soil blows away or gets stripped. We see it today. We know its consequences, but short-term greed overwhelms our fear of the long-term results. So how did all this begin? 
Uh, there are linear theories and circular theories. There's the Adam and Eve story of creation. There's the Darwin story of evolution. There's the pagan stories of children of the gods who came to Earth, bred with human women to produce superheroes, not unlike the comic book and movie superheroes that fascinate audiences of today. The stories that come from the oral recitations of the blind poet Homer, the stories of Ajax and Achilles and Odysseus and the abilities they exercised during the battle for Troy. Stories going back in oral tradition to 1200 BC or thereabouts were every bit as exciting to those gathered around the fire as uh, Superman, Batman, Iron Man, and Supergirl stories we see in the multiplex. The early Christian fathers who assembled the Bible from the parts available to them referred to the pagan gods who fathered and mothered the semi-immortals of old as being the fallen angels. That is, Zeus and Athena and Apollo and the like, those for whom the Egyptian, Greek, and Roman temples were built, were deemed to by the church fathers to be uh, the followers of Lucifer, and who are referred to in Genesis chapter 6 as being attracted to human women and impregnating them. Uh, their mixed kind offspring, the Nephilim, uh, were the uh, creatures God intended to destroy in the flood, or so that Christian story goes. And then there is the alien from the other world's take on it, such as the one of our guides, one of our guides in Sicily believed. She'd read all 15 of, uh, Zachariah Sitkin's books and, um, Sitkin believed that aliens from Planet X, um, Planet X, Nabooru, uh, stop off here on Earth when the extreme elliptical orbit of their planet comes close enough that they can use us and the Earth's resources for their own ends. Sitkin researched our ancient history, especially the 6,000-year-old stories from the Sumerian, where, for instance, you find the first um, telling of the Noah story to make his case. Now, those who've experienced near-death revelations sometimes ask, does any of this speculation really matter? In the long run, we have the answers to all these questions, according to the insights of near-death reports. And yet there, the, the problem is almost all NDEs do not take us very far into the process of uh, what happens when we die to reveal whether the process is linear, Judeo-Christian, you know, once around the track and then into the light, or Buddhist-Hindu circular many lifetimes into which each soul is born to experience the chaos that is human history, until perhaps we're ready to give up our ego and merge with the light. Those of you uh, who follow this show uh, know I put some weight to, to the NDE report described by Plato in his 10th book of the Republic. Um but every one of you really should read it because it is, um, it's an in-depth telling, uh, of a story of what happens when we die. Right, that writing comes from around 400 BC, long before Raymond Moody and his Life After Life book was written. And it tells of lifetimes separated by periods we spend in heaven or hell, 
being rewarded or punished for our previous lifetime's behavior of creation or destruction during our part of human history until we emerge renewed to live another lifetime of creation or destruction, depending on what route we choose on Earth. Now, Ur, the, the soldier from the Platonic NDE, the Platonic telling of an NDE, spoke of um, our deciding, to some extent, our course on Earth, and uh, so that part of our life is lived by design, and part of our life is lived by a toss of the dice, by chance, and... Um, it seems like that would be an excellent explanation for why people wind up living the lives they do. I mean, sometimes I'll have people tell me, uh, God never throws more at you than, than you can handle. But in many cases, it seems like God gives us much more, gives some people much more than they can handle. That would be the toss of the dice part of our life story. Plato's NDE story, unlike most others I've encountered, tells the full story of the cycle of death to reincarnation. Though we can't say whether Plato actually heard it from a, an nde or experienced it for himself or invented it as part of his philosophy. Now, in past shows, I've quoted St. Paul's remarks from time to time that oh, we're already seated in the heavenlies. In other words, that we are outside of time, already in uh, heaven with God. And I think it, it the, the fact that he could even say that reveals a profound understanding for a first century thinker, first century A.D. thinker, of the nature of time and the nature of our relationship with a timeless God. And that is, if, if there is no time for God, we're already there. In heaven, no, no matter how many lives we live or have lived or will live. So how can that be? When I'm on that track, I, I often think of us playing video games in heaven with our physical avatars working things out on earth. If we're already seated in the heavenlies, maybe we're gathered around a computer screen, a, a spiritual keyboard, and we know this uh, earthly game isn't for real. We do it for our own amusement, for our own uh, learning, or, or whatever. After all, if we have all the answers when we get to heaven, our only alternative is to invent new experiences in the game to apply those answers to. I don't know if there is such a, uh, a condition as boredom in heaven, but it uh, certainly strikes me from time to time when I talk to people who claim to talk to people already on the other side, how uh, how dull an existence they often describe. And uh, to do something like uh, play a video game in heaven with uh, earthly avatars would be, oh, I don't know, some something more equivalent to getting a new crossword puzzle to, to see how the words we already know can further interconnect in new and different ways. These psychics who claim to communicate with heavenly residents talk of idyllic settings we can experience just by willing it so. Want to experience a day at the beach while you're in heaven? Uh, just think up, think that it's there. Think that you're there at the beach. 
as I say, that notion of heaven seems boring to me. Uh, others claim we get uh, engaged from afar after we die in solving the problems of the world, helping gently guide family members still on earth or helping solve bigger problems, big political problems, in which case I'm sure there are lots of uh, spirits on the other side trying to work our way through the uh, the political elections that we're going, the, the ridiculous elections that we're going through this year. Perhaps we get to choose the nature of our video games. Is it Sims? Do we build cities? Uh, is it war games, violent warrior stuff? As for me, I've never been drawn to c- computerized realities uh, more virtual than the one we're already living through right here on Earth right now. And then there is that eternal question about time itself. If there is no time as such, how can we be talking about how we'll be spending time in heaven? What does that even mean? Shouldn't we be in a moment of eternal, timeless now, at one with the light and love of God? But the question becomes... Who is ready to give up their selfness? From this life to the other side and back again, we are tightly bound to our individuality, our our personal existence. Even while we recognize we are just tiny sparks flown away from the source, that light of God brighter than 10,000 suns as it's been described, we can merge with that light. Uh, I believe we were meant to merge with that light and give up ourselves, lose ourselves to the one, but only when we're ready. That truly is enlightenment, merging with the light. But can you imagine being ready to give up your own beingness, your individual identity, to truly merge with God? It's it's one of those uh, great idea but not yet concepts that keeps us plugging along in this dimension we call time. I don't know any of this for sure, but I suspect that's why Buddha only became enlightened after he discovered suffering, and why Jesus hung out with the poor, the sick, the crazies, and those rejected by others, those people in despair. I mean, after all, who's more likely to give up their egos and merge with the light? The Donald Trumps of the world, or the lame man barely surviving by picking over the garbage in the Cairo dump. As long as we are driven to hang on to our selfness or, or selfishness, we bind ourselves to the dimension of time. Buddha knew he was furthest from enlightenment when he lived in the palace and never knew the reality of human suffering in the world. Jesus knew truth lived closer to the poor than to those who dwelled in political and religious positions of authority. The suffering often live closer to egolessness. They may truly yearn to be with God, to step outside of time and and of their selves. And God is willing to wait, because after all, there is no waiting for a God outside of time. Uh, God doesn't wait. God is. And so to God, we're already home. One of the best books I know on what the death of the body is all about and what what happens to the soul 
after we die, uh, what stages it goes through, is the NDE researcher PMH Atwater's book, recent book, Dying to Know You, Proof of God in the Near-Death Experience. And for those of you who uh, might want to know more about it, rather than rushing out to buy a copy, which actually I would urge you to do, you could go back a few programs in our in our past live past programs library on uh, the Talkzone website, and you'll find uh, PMH Outwater talking about the book herself. But anyway, um, I draw from page thirty nine of her book. about what happens uh, when we die, where we go. PMH writes, you go where you fit when you die. I'm talking energy here because we are energy beings. We vibrate. Everything does. The scenarios of near death states that once you, the real you, leave your body in death, you eventually find yourself moving to or present within a vibratory frequency you energetically resonate with. What you find within that frequency corresponds to what you're capable of responding to, that is, types of beings, shapes, forms, activities, landscapes. These frequency realms resemble a layer cake of many levels, each separated from the other by degrees of lighter, finer vibrations, or heavier, denser ones. To understand what I'm saying, hang out with experiencers as I have, and she has hung out with thousands. Snuggle up and absorb their words, feelings, their sense of awe tinged with the fear of too much, too simple, too perfect. It's as if the symbols of their culture, their religion, and their dreams fail utterly in comparison with the real thing. The real afterlife of heaven, hell, the borderlands, as in between where some souls roam around, uh, appear to be lost or simply wait, and judgment. Really an excellent little book. Coming back from Sicily and all that art concerning what medieval Catholics and and many of today's Catholics, for that, that matter, take to be the permanence of heavenly reward and eternal torment, one can't help but dwell a little on the nature of purgatory. Now, purgatory only became a place as such as an outgrowth of Catholic thinking during the early Middle Ages, and it got set up in that form as a part of Dante's book, The Divine Comedy, a copy of which I just happen to have sitting next to me right now. The notion of souls evolving Changing after death has long been a part of religious thinking, though, far earlier than the Middle Ages, far earlier than Dante. With uh, prayers for the dead being away, the living can mitigate some of the suffering we go through in cleansing our souls on the other side. Now, as a chaplain in the hospital, I have often been told by patients that they believe we are already living in hell. It's not just the pain of their current disease or condition. It's it's often just their whole lives and a bad event, an accident, crisis stacked on top of accident and crisis. On other occasions, I've heard from New Agers, naturalists, that we are already living in a heaven on earth, 
what with the beauty of nature all around us. Even though it seems we are destroying it with both hands, of course. My thinking used to be that this area, uh, the area Atwater refers to as the borderlands, that spiritual area on earth uh, inhabited by the ghosts of dead people who got stuck here, might be that area we call purgatory. Uh, that might be it. But I begin to suspect that life on Earth might be the main purgation arena for those of us who, not being ready to leave time and our egos, choose instead to reincarnate. Now, Hindus would say this is the place we're given to work off bad karma. We get reincarnated, in other words, as as a rock or an insect or a or a highly uh, evolved being, depending on our previous behavior, our previous existence. And, in fact, that fits the picture of purgatory, uh, contention of evil against good in uh, the purifying of our souls. New Agers say we come back to learn new lessons, and, well, that would fit too. What's interesting about this notion is the idea that those of... of um, of you not ready to leave the dimension called time, can choose to spend it here on Earth, a place of pain, cruelty, greed, and suffering, but, but also a place we, we learn to practice compassion and love. To suggest there's a purgatory is to imply there's a hell as well, and many NDEers would disagree. Their experience of the light and love of God suggests that all is forgiven after we die. This is a training ground, they say, and we're forgiven every mistake we've made when we cross over. This point of view is well represented by those who have had happy NDEs, but there are many DNDEers, uh, what are called distressed or distressing NDEs. These distressed NDEers uh, would argue otherwise. And about this, PMA Chatwater, again writing and Dying to Know You, says... Yes, there is a hell, and people go there. She writes, I know the majority of those who die and return to life claim the exact opposite, and they are adamant in doing so. Only unconditional love resides on the other side of death, they say. Whatever kinks need to be worked out, whatever darkness or difficulty, the soul's redemption is assured. Not to worry, forgiveness rules. In order to make sense of the various claims experiencers make, we must look at everything, she writes. There's more beyond claims of pro and con. To find that more, we need to dig deep. For starters, know that one in seven of those I had sessions with reported hellish, frightening, or unpleasant near-death experiences. Other researchers state that these types of episodes are rare. Well, I guess that depends on what you consider rare. I honestly believe there are lots of them but the people who have them won't say anything. Maybe what holds them back is a sense of regret or shame or embarrassment or confusion. I really don't know. I only know that during the 80s, people were more open about this than they are now. In 1989, for instance, I encountered more experiencers of hellish states than I did heavenly. Well, these hells may be self-inflicted based on the guild experience during a life review. But self-inflicted or not, they indicate the reality of love's absence. 
and the consequential inflicting of pain on ourselves and others. Perhaps this world, the world of matter and time, depends on duality, and the counterbalance to love is the tangible absence of love, the antimatter necessary for matter to exist. Perhaps there's no duality in heaven. All is the light of God's love. Perhaps there's no duality in hell. All is the absence of God's love. But in purgatory, time and duality fully exist. In that case, what difference could there be between purgatory and this earthly plane? Well, we're out of time for today. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any other of our previous programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS and our upcoming conference in July in Orlando, Florida, please visit that website at iands.org. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.